You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Lisa Hyland, Associate Director for Public Programming here in the Energy Program and your host this week. Happy New Year and welcome to our first podcast of 2019. Like many of you, we've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks thinking about which policies, which policy decisions, and economic forces could affect energy trends this year. At the top of the list, surprising no one, is the Green New Deal. With us this week are Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program, and our returning guest, Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners, and Kevin is also an affiliate with the Energy Program. Together, they will help us make sense of which issues could be most influential to energy and which are most likely to just be buzzwords. So, Kevin, uh, Clearview's outlook this year talks about a convergence toward something you're calling command capitalism. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's kind of a, it sounds like one of those buzzwordy things that everyone will nod to without knowing what they're nodding about. Like a Green well, New Deal. <laughs> sort of like a Green New Deal, yeah, and actually sort of a manifestation of it. So a lot of conversation has gone into China's capitalist adaptation, right? They've, they've adopted some of the principles of capitalism while remain, remaining essentially an authoritarian, essentially uh, a socialist state. Uh, and th- we think of the United States and the Western world really as sort of a, a democratic place, a place where market principles do the allocation and where capitalism, the private ownership of stuff is the way things work. Energy projects are long-lived. People make big investments. There's a lot of risk when things can change. And so one of the, the, the meaningful changes that we're starting to see, it's not new, but it's maybe cresting a little bit, is a distrust of market allocation. Uh, and it, it certainly shows up from time to time in history when markets collapse and, and, and people revisit their commitment. But globally, uh, the linkage between capitalism and democracy was one of the, the sort of the last 70 years of the Western world's great campaigns seems to be breaking down. Within the Western world, the commitment to capitalism sometimes seems to be breaking down too. And when energy projects are affected, it can subvert the economics of those projects. One of the things that hasn't happened yet but came up last year was the idea of the the Trump administration using the Defense Production Act and the Federal Power Act to intervene into power markets, to essentially give a leg up to coal and to nuclear units. Uh, Maybe it'll emerge, maybe it won't. But the idea was one essentially of using command authorities in the name of national security to achieve an economic result. Uh, You can also point to Canada, where there's been some fairly specific interventions into the oil market, the, the purchase of a pipeline when takeaway capacity was scarce, and more recently, the allocation of quotas to producers in in Alberta uh, to try to manage an oversupply situation. So these things matter in our view because if you start to see a bigger trend towards command interventions into capitalist economies, you probably will start to see some underperforming energy assets and maybe a change in investment flows. So taking a very specific case, you've been sort of looking at climate policy for a long time. That probably understates it just a little bit. Do you you agree that the climate debate is maybe moving away sort of from market-based mechanisms, cap and trade, and even for that matter, sort of a carbon tax, and towards more prescriptive policies? Is that something that that you're seeing? Yeah, it's funny because you described something of a convergence with the sort of state-led 
energy approach, economic policy approach that we're seeing in China and the one that we're accustomed to in the United States, which, as you said, you know, you kind of breezed past it. It's a fairly profound thing to say that the relationship between capitalism and democracy might be changing a little bit. But um, that's precisely why I think it's as poignant. Your examples were largely grounded in energy sector projects driven by other phenomenon. I actually completely agree that it it's a it's a pervasive force that is also taking place within climate grounds and maybe for different reasons, right? So um, a couple of the things that I think are leading people away from the most economically rational approach to uh, to climate change is um, is actually the pace or the scale of the challenge itself, right? So the idea that you could have a carbon price that would be broadly fed into the economy that thereby would, you know, allocate capital in the most efficient way and allow firms to sort of make their own decisions is something that it's not hugely tangible. But when you look at the last UNFCCC negotiation, they didn't get about the process of making the rules, the part of the rule book that was supposed to be about sort of linking together these um, cap and trade systems and dealing with market mechanisms. They didn't take it up. And quite frankly, you know, aside from a few, you know, different constituencies within the context of those negotiations, nobody really minded that much. And I think it's because we haven't yet had a really fulsome debate about whether or not these economically rational pathways to a two-degree target are really as uh, important to consider in the political economy of climate choices as the ones that are just a little bit more certain, like a mandate, like a renewable portfolio standard mandate or a clean energy mandate, and then a little bit further afield, the, hey, just don't produce oil and gas anymore sorts of, you know, uh, bans that, you know, you've started to see not on the sort of oil and gas production side of the ledger in any big way, but certainly on the internal combustion uh, side of the equation in different sort of subnational places. So I think it's it's not a conversation we've gotten to the end of, but you certainly get a sense that within the climate change realm, there is a, a, a desire to find something that's a little bit more direct and certain than a market-based approach to these solutions. So I think the clearest example of where this conversation might go in concrete terms is what you're seeing um, in the United States in the rise of this idea of a Green New Deal. So, you know, you guys talked about a Green New Deal as well in your outlook, and you characterized it more as a political organizing strategy rather than an energy plan. Why can't it be both? Well, I suppose it, it could be both. The attractiveness as a, an organizing strategy in some ways is the compactness of messaging in a Twitterverse, right? You know, we learned a lesson from 2016 was how powerful 140 characters could be in cutting through a noisy world. It's 280 characters now, but whatever. You've got three syllables, Green New Deal, and two constituencies of the Democratic Party, right? The Green side and the New Deal side. And that's a very powerful outreach tool when you think about what it means to sort of get messages out to people in a noisy world, in a noisy field, in a field of candidates that I think Google will need a new search engine for all of the, the Democratic Party candidates for the presidency in 2020 uh, as they're rolling out so quickly. But the, uh, the question of whether it could be both is really a question of how it is defined in the end. And the definition of a Green New Deal has been kind of elusive. There are different groups who have different 
parts of the deal that they want to advance. Uh, for example, there's the, the transition to an electric power future that is 100% renewable. Uh, if you go to Martin O'Malley in the 2016 election, again, not to fight the last war repeatedly, but he was, you know, he sort of came out and said, well, it sort of appeared suddenly in his comments that he wanted a 2050 target for 100% renewable power. Uh, and that was in contrast to mid-century 80% targets that were coming out of the Obama administration at the time. And now we're hearing about a 100% renewable target for 2030. Uh, that, that prescription from the, the Sunrise Movement, uh, affiliated with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, is a much more rapid change. I mean, that, that's, that's becoming something that's more of a government intervention, a command-level intervention, uh, and probably very far from feasible and better as an organizing principle. You can imagine a candidate campaigning on that in a similar way that a candidate might say campaign on a border wall uh, and then attracting a, a, a very significant following from the party base, but then defining downward once in leadership to come to a, a goal that maybe meets the, the realities of the present. And so, I mean, what you, know, what you end up with is a different plan. Uh, this is really to get people off their couches and, and into the, the, the political process for 2020. That's, that's probably its first, first order value. And the second order value is, yes, as an energy plan. But it's actually you I'm thinking of when, uh, when I say, you know, the, the New Deal constituency, because you were the first person I remember making the point that the Green New Deal may be more about the New Deal part than it is about the, the Green part. Do you still think that? I mean, looking at the recent past, we had the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the ARA, call it the, the last green dole. And it was all about jobs and greening up. Do, does there need to even be a, a Green New Deal today? I guess that's two things. But, you know, what, what do you think about the green part and the New Deal part? Yeah, I was, you know, I was kind of poking a stick at you when I asked the question about can't it be an energy strategy and a politically motivating strategy at the same time? Because I, I agree with you that, you know, it there's been a lot tweeted, but not a lot said about what a Green New Deal is. And and I partially that can be by design, right? So um, we started this conversation about, you know, a, a, a broader idea of where the world's political economy is. And I think the reason that we are starting in that place is because it's the most powerful political economic force in the world today. You know, the idea that there is something fundamentally different about how um, politics and economics are colliding into understanding our new, you know, priorities and creating economic anxiety in countries around the world is something that governments are having to deal with. And I think that the idea behind the Green New Deal and the reason why it's resonated so quickly is not because everybody woke up and stumbled across this idea of climate change and said, oh, wait a minute, I really care about this. <laughs> it's the idea that it tries to create a new economic reality for the United States. And what you see is you very rightly sort of linked the the kind of populist mentality that you know in some ways along with maybe some other forces catapulted the Trump administration's economic nationalist agenda to a very prominent place with the same kind of populist mentality that is behind a green new deal is is this sort of hunger for an understanding of what the future of the U.S. economy is. Um, people are looking for more economic security. When you look into the Green New Deal package, 
right? There's like one component piece of it that's about 100% renewable power and greater energy efficiency in buildings and a whole bunch of other things that actually have something to do with decarbonizing and removing carbon from the atmosphere related to the U.S. economy. There's also this other whole part of it, which is about job guarantees and minimum wage and labor rights and just transition and a whole bunch of other things that are just fundamentally have nothing to do with the green part of that New Deal. And one of the things I think is the the most successful part of the the environmental movement is understanding that Sometimes people care about their issues. In fact, most of the time people care about their issues. It's just not at a super high level. It's not the top of their list. And so in in trying to co-opt things that people generally do care about and that have political salience, they manage to be able to try and give their issues new resonance and political relevance. So you could see a manifestation of a Green New Deal in a new progressive administration or, you know, just in sort of the dialogue that we're going to see coming out of the new Democratic leadership in the in the House of Representatives that is really about climate change or really about re-engineering the U.S. economy to be more about the worker, to be less about capital, to be less about the way in which we've always thought about free markets and efficiency and competitiveness and GDP gains, and more about the idea that there's something in the U.S. economic system that's broken. That's why you see people like Elizabeth Warren, who has subsequently signed on to a Green New Deal, but absolutely put forward the idea of re-engineering the U.S. economy forward. They're the same thing. They're just deciding which part of it you lead with, the green part or the redistribution of the U.S. economy part. And the thing that I, not redistribution, I'm sorry, the re-sort of engineering of the U.S. economy part, because there's a giant debate about whether that's redistributive or not. So one of the things that I think is interesting on that side is as someone who cares about climate change, not that I don't care about those other things and, and cares about the energy aspects, the idea that the green part of the Green New Deal has to be part of this political movement is the big question for me. It could be a new deal that has nothing to do with being green if people really look at just trying to create infrastructure jobs or just trying to create a different healthcare system or more social insurance for the underemployed and those sorts of things. And that would be much more like what you saw under the last stimulus package, where the economic stimulus package part of it started to matter more than the green part of it, right? Something that was shovel-ready mattered more than something that had really desirable, desirable green attributes. The other part that we learned from the ARA thing that I think we'll take into this Green New Deal discussion was whether or not that money actually effectively yielded the kinds of outcomes that we thought they would, right? You had lots of questions about um, whether or not stimulus-oriented money actually yielded positive investments and was a was a good use of capital. I think we just haven't gotten to that part of this discussion. Um, and and that's where I think most of the discussion on the Green New Deal side of the ledger will be, which is how do you actually incentivize or create the kind of policies that would yield those outcomes. 
My question for you is, you have voiced some interest in the portion of this discussion that is the 100% renewable energy by, you know, within the next 10 years. Um, There's been a huge debate about whether or not that's even a plausible goal. What do you think about that? Well, uh, yeah, there's there's been a debate. I think, uh, you know, it's probably not a debate that washed onto the screens of America's uh, voting base the same way current shutdown debate has done. Uh, but in 2015, Stanford professor Mark Jacobson wrote a, a fairly auspicious scenario uh, describing a 100% renewable future effectively without economic dislocation. Uh, and it was rebutted in 2017 by a group of academics uh, led by Christopher Clack, who is a NOAA scientist. And uh, the, the general debate, I think, probably lives mostly within the Wonka sphere. But the, the tenor of the question it, it derives from the fact that there are no more dangerous words in economics than why can't we just, right? It's, the, it's sort of the economic equivalent of hold my beer and watch this. Uh, and the reasons why you can't just have a lot to do with the incumbency of infrastructure. And so, so much of the question revolves around how much is this going to cost and who's going to pay for it? And the answer has two dimensions. One is, is time and the second is mechanism. If you have to do it in 10 years, it's going to cost rather a lot. Uh, you know, that, that part of the discussion is really sort of a new organizing principle, as I would suggest, and, and less, less of a, a hardened bedrock requirement. Mid-century is, is pretty soon for a utility sector, for, you know, for a, a, a trillion watts of, of capacity to, to move around. But then there's also the, the how is the mechanism going to work? You know, there's different mechanisms that have been lined up. There's the idea of a carbon tax. There's the idea of performance standards. Uh, there's now the, the, the cap-and-trade modality, which seems to have fallen very far from favor. But beyond that, as, as you mentioned, there's also the idea of interdiction, an outright ban. And essentially, this is that. You know, moving to 100% something else means getting rid of what is essentially right now 90% of the incumbent infrastructure. Uh, that has incredibly negative ramifications from a cost perspective, unless the society as a whole can justify a public takings, right? And the, the, again, this organically is not the stuff of capitalism. This would not be the thing that asset holders entered into when they committed capital to the infrastructure that still has residual value and salvage value. No way. Uh, and so this is a fight in the making. Um, but basically, the one school of thought that it's completely tenable and the one school of thought that it's incredibly expensive are at loggerheads. And somewhere in between, there are questions, practical questions like, what about natural gas leaving the mix? Natural gas is made so much possible by being so affordable. And so a lot of the incremental cost of greening up the mix thus far may have been masked by the presence of gas in the generation mix. But when you start to take that away as you move towards 100% green, What do the costs look like? And the technology optimists, to use a term I think we discussed in a prior podcast, would say, well, you know, the technology is going to be there. It's fine. Yeah, not in 10 years, though. And and again, salvage value has to come from somewhere. So uh, but all this I mean, all this is presumed uh, part of a broader climate debate. You know, the days when we were talking about energy jobs and green jobs among them because we were in a low uh, employment, high unemployment world have been flipped. And now we have a, a low unemployment, high employment world. And, and so I, I guess, you know, we're, we're both pretty politically neutral. As a matter of profession, we have to be. That's what being objective requires. And so if, if you were to put on your political hat, do you see the next two years closing the gap between the parties on climate and green energy? Is there a catalyst for this coming out of politics? Or could the next two years widen things? 
It's a great question. I mean, I think the next two years will widen a lot of things, um, particularly for anybody who occupies a place in the middle, right? The, 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 the poles of this will all start to feel a little bit wider. The weird thing for me is I think that the unifying factor of both the, the very right wing and the very left wing of U.S. politics actually have a lot in common with one another if you just take the climate out of it, right? So the economic anxiety aspect of this is, is something that is unifying in a way that is important because it points the fault of their economic anxiety at Washington. It points the fault at the people who are the defenders of the capitalist system in the United States as it is currently constructed. And what you see is they're looking at the rules and regulations in Washington as the source of corruption that is keeping them from being able to be competitive. Whether they want more government involvement and less government involvement is where they part ways, but that the system is rigged for them is a big problem. And I think that is why this concept of the Green New Deal or the convergence towards command capitalism that you're talking about is going to be really important because I think that the one place where we're going to see a unifying of viewpoints and in fact maybe a um, uh, a convergence towards the middle on it, it, towards more moderate folks is this idea that something has to change about the way that the U.S. economy is structured and the way that the rules uh, are run. And that's going to be where, um, uh, where you see sort of a political convergence. And to the extent that climate change becomes part of that conversation, and can be co-opted into part of that conversation, I think that's where you see a lot of, um, of potential for the climate debate to have, quite frankly, a resonance in the next two years that I didn't think it was going to have. But I don't think you're going to all of a sudden find a large number of you know, Republican candidates coming forward and saying that they you know, very much care about climate change in the way that progressive Democrats will be talking about it. You may see a group of Republicans decide that they want to start talking in really normal terms about, you know, accepting climate and wanting to have more money for research and development and the like, those kinds of, you know, things that you've seen. But I don't really think that that's going to be the area where uh, where you find convergence. So no art of the deal for a Green New Deal necessarily. More more of a, a deal about a new deal that could be green. Yeah, what I what I hear more people talking about is what could be done in the next two years that's a down payment to a future coherent strategy on climate, right? So are there things that will come out of the next two years of this government, you know, whether it is in Congress and it's some sort of infrastructure package or it's some other thing that's going to move where they can start to make sort of headway on, um, on, on an eventual, you know, sort of um, – uh, pathway towards uh, towards climate uh, action in some way, shape, or form. And I think there's a lot of people who want the answer to that question to be, let's think more about what a carbon tax trade-off, you know, for regulation, you know, within the government system will look like. That's what people that are in the middle want to see coming out of this conversation. I'm not sure that that's going to happen within the next couple of years or even, you know, much progress be made on that within the next couple of years. But I think that that's the, you know, uh, that's the thing that people are preparing for should an opportunity arise. 
I personally think that there will be more energy on the the New Deal side of the Green New Deal discussion and and people trying to say, hey, let's see if we can make the green part of the Green New Deal more salient. We'll do things like what you just suggested, Kevin, which is maybe it's not 100% renewable energy, but could it be 100% clean energy? Could you change the terminology in a way that you still get a bigger push for some of the things that are incumbent in the Green New Deal, but they're not as stark or difficult to achieve? You know, you and I often find ourselves in in sort of deafening agreement. Uh, I think here's one area where we maybe have slightly different perspectives. Uh, I'm less optimistic about the federal cooperation scenario you're describing now and possibly even in in some distant post-2020 future, whenever that is. Um, But at a state level, I think the rollback-rebound dynamic that has been much discussed, where the federal government's deregulatory efforts are accelerating some of the greening up in already green states, that mechanism seems to be well underway. And if there's a federal role to be played, uh, in some ways, I think maybe that select committee on the climate crisis, the one that fell short of being a select committee on the Green New Deal, uh, and really is more, it seems to be more of a committee, it's about fighting more than writing, uh, because Speaker Pelosi has wisely uh, avoided putting a lot of at-risk members on the spot by having a legislative authority come from that, com- that committee. Well, that could end up sending up a bat signal to, to governors in newly uh, sort of newly anointed governors, I guess I should say, uh, in, in producing states in particular. Uh, New Mexico, Michelle Lewin Grisham, uh, Jared Polis in Colorado, for their own green debates at home, for, for these sort of these, these growing, burgeoning producing areas, uh, seeing some validation from Washington for local action. So maybe the dynamic uh, as an alternative to, and, and of course, uh, this isn't a competition. Uh, we, we all look to the future with great curiosity and excitement. Uh, but, you know, a scenario that we would offer as a, as a counterpoint might be that the, the acceleration of greening up uh, with validation from a new voice from that House Select Committee uh, might be the, the most imminent mechanism, which isn't really about that, that sort of New Deal populism so much at all. Uh, the two can certainly coexist. I yeah I I don't uh, I don't discount that I think I think you're right I think that that's probably the most likely outcome I agree that um, um, you know you and I sat down right before the midterm election to talk about what the outcome of the midterm election oh, would yes. be and I have subsequently told people I was really surprised and quite frankly pleasantly surprised that the Green New Deal has already in, you know, what, the short several weeks that we've been into 2019, upended my prediction on how much this was going to matter in House of Representatives discussions. I mean, and that's the thing that's caused me to pause and reevaluate how much of, quite frankly, on the geopolitical side of the work that we do here at CSIS Energy Program, thinking about how much populism and this basic idea that we came into the conversation with about, you know, new ideas about the role of the state in what we've presumed to be largely a free market oriented capitalist undertaking might change in the exceedingly populist times that we're in. I guess my money is still on we're not done with this yet. I think we're going to have a a new Tea Party in Washington. It's going to be the Green Tea Party, and it'll be sort of that next wave of populism. I'm not sure that that's going to go in a different direction um, than than what you've just suggested, you know, all of the bat signal. Um, But but it has caused me to pause and think twice about the, the prospects of the Green New Deal. 
Thanks for listening to Energy 360. Find more episodes from Energy 360 at CSIS.org and on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.